You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. People were asked in a survey, if they could ask God one question, what would it be? And the most popular response had to do with this problem. It always took some form of, why is there suffering? Why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And this is a vital question because how we deal with it has, has a drastic, drastic outcome. The way that we deal with this question will cement elements of our character. Every one of us faces suffering in this life. Every one of us, to some degree, has faced hardship this week. Can I just tell you that this past week has been a tough week for me? Not because any tragedy struck, but because there have been all of these minor inconveniences that have happened. You remember the just heavy rain that happened on Thursday? I am not kidding, 15 minutes before the heavy rain came, my window went down and would not come up in my truck, all right? This is one of those things you're like, the timing of this is is, is incredible. And that's not a big deal. I got it fixed. It's not a problem. But there are so many things this week that happened like that that were just minor inconveniences, minor things that that gave me frustration. And, And I wanted to be upset about them, but I couldn't. Because I'm working on a message about the great tragedies and suffering in the world, and I I would feel guilty even being upset about that because there are people facing so much more. So if you had a tough week, at least you got to be upset about it, okay? Because I wasn't able to be upset about it this week. We all face difficulties. We all face circumstances that make life hard. And we all answer this problem. We all find a solution to this problem. Now, some people find a solution to this problem by attempting to spend their life ignoring it. Some people spend their life seeking out pleasure. And they're able to, in their mind, say it's going to balance out. Yes, all of these bad things are happening, but I'm going to outweigh the bad with good things that I enjoy and pleasure that I'm going to have and fun that I'm going to have and trips that I'm going to have. Some people use substances or money or position or fame to try to outweigh the suffering in life. And many people spend their lives on a mission to just have more good than there is bad in their personal experience. But some people can't can't find that. They can't find a path to more pleasure than pain. They can't find a path to more success than suffering. And because they are unable to find a way to bring more joy than distress into their life, they go down the path towards nihilism. And nihilism leads us to this awful place of despondency, depression, heartache, and even violence. On April 20th of 1999, at Columbine High School in Jefferson County, Colorado, two senior students, Eric Harris and Dylan Kleibold, murdered 12 students and one teacher. They injured another 21 people. But that was only a fraction of the people that they planned to hurt. They had placed 99 explosive devices in and around the school, in the cafeteria. If those devices had worked, they would have killed people numbering in the hundreds. They had placed explosive devices in the parking lot so that as first responders came to the scene, they would also be injured and hurt. Thankfully, they were incompetent 
and the creation of their explosive devices, and none of those worked. And the shooting was more of a plan B, a second option, just trying to make up for their failure and those explosives. Reading the journals of those two students, after they had their face off with police and committed suicide, if you read their journals, what you see is that they had come to this nihilistic approach to life. They had an extreme skepticism, maintaining that nothing in the world had real existence or meaning. Harris had worked out to the full degree nihilism's product, determining life is meaningless. And if life is meaningless, I have every right to take the life of another if it brings me some measure of Relief from my own suffering. And we saw the, the outworking of this over the past century as people who came to believe that life had no meaning and that suffering was just a natural byproduct of life. They came to believe that if they could take the lives of others, if it brought them gain, power, prestige, that it was justified. Some of you have been to see a pretty popular movie in the past week, Avengers Infinity War, and the main antagonist, Thanos, his whole approach to life, his whole approach to his mission to end half of the, the universe is that if he kills half, then the other half will be better off and will face less suffering. It's nihilism. It's saying if I can wipe out a good portion of people, then there will be less suffering for the less of us, and that justifies the violence that it would take. So how we deal with this question and the problem of suffering is incredibly important. Not only is it incredibly important, it's been said, this problem of suffering has been said to be one of the key points in an atheist playbook. The, pro the problem of suffering has been called the atheist rock. Ronald Nash said every philosopher believes that the most serious challenge to theism or belief in God was and is and will continue to be the problem of evil. David Hume has put the atheist argument pretty simply by saying, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's impotent. If he wants evil to be put away, if he wants suffering to be put away, but he's not able, then he's not really God. Is he able but not willing? then he's malevolent. If God has the power to end suffering and he doesn't, then he's a, he's a hateful God and he just wants us to suffer. Is he both able and willing? If God is able to reduce suffering and willing to reduce suffering, why then is there suffering? That's the question. I need you to, first of all, see that the problem of suffering is an effective problem. It affects us deeply, but it's not a logical one. Much of the problem of suffering is quite personal. Much like the issue of hell, we think on this topic emotionally instead of logically. We think on this topic in the, the, the realm of people we know have suffered, people that we have come to know have gone through great tragedies. We ourselves have gone through great tragedy. And so this is not a theoretical or theological or philosophical problem only. It's a highly personal problem. Why is there suffering? We feel this question. And I see you feel this question. You know why? 
Because very few people call me up and say, Pastor Daniel, I just want you to know that things in my life are going awesome. And I wanted to talk to a pastor about it. Pastor Daniel, I wanted to call and let you know that everyone in my family is healthy, and I've got a good job, and my finances are straight, and I'm totally sober, and I just wanted to call and let you know. No, that's not the reason people call me. Why do they call me? They call me to say, my life's a mess. My marriage is falling apart. I'm broke. I'm struggling with addiction. And so many of you, the conversations that we have, have centered around suffering. And so I feel this with you deeply and personally, because it's the context that many of our relationships have been formed in. It's the context that many of our relationships have their, their most experience in. Many of you, you met me at funeral homes and at hospitals and in jails. And we came in contact with one another, not because everything was awesome, but because everything was not awesome. And so I feel this with you this morning. This weighs heavy on me. I look out into the eyes of people I know have gone through great tragedy, great heartache. That right now you're, you're suffering, you're going through this difficulty. And so I, I recognize this is a, a deeply personal problem. I'm going to offer you some philosophical and biblical answers, but I want you to know first that I feel this too. That if I just approach this from a rational or philosophical uh, approach, it will seem very cold and distant, and that is not my heart at all. This is a tough problem. It's a tough problem that Scripture doesn't run away from either. It's a tough problem that Scripture runs headlong into. The Psalms are full of poetry that are about, God, you're awesome, and God, where are you? God, you're all-powerful, but God, my enemies are overcoming me. God, you are a great and loving God, but I am depressed and distressed. Where are you, God? And so the Scripture doesn't ignore this problem. It jumps head-on into it. And I believe that Christianity has the very best answer for the problem of suffering. This is a tough problem. And it's a tough problem that all the religions and philosophies of the world must answer. So let me point out a couple of other answers before we get to the Christian answer. First of all, atheism and naturalism tell us that suffering doesn't really matter. If you and I are just animals that have evolved from lower beings to be higher functioning beings, suffering is just part of the game, and there is no meaning to it. There was a high school student who went to her senior prom and went into the bathroom of her senior prom, gave birth to a baby. She was pregnant, gave birth at her prom, strangled the child, threw it in a trash can. And people were up in arms about this, as you might imagine. Thought about the suffering of that little child and those moments as she goes back out into her prom and continues to enjoy the evening. People struggle with the idea of that suffering child and then her walking out as if nothing had happened. And one naturalistic philosopher and scientist wrote, this is just the outgrowth of infanticide. This is in our genes that years and years and years ago, millions and millions of years ago, mothers had to make the choice, do I have enough food to feed all of my children? If not, I will kill the weakest one so that I can feed the others. You know what he's saying? He's saying the strangling of the child... That's just, that's just evolution at work. That's just a, a mother deciding that she is going to do what is best for her or better for the whole than what is best for that child. And if you follow out naturalistic and evolutionary thinking, suffering is just another form of survival of the fittest. 
It's another way that we get rid of the weak so that the strong can survive and continue to procreate and continue to reproduce. So the atheistic, naturalistic view of suffering is it doesn't really matter. The Eastern religions teach that suffering is the result of karma. And I would guess that there are probably some people in here that you've liked the idea of karma. Maybe you've even said, like, karma's going to get them, right? Somebody does you wrong, somebody causes you to suffer, and you're like, what goes around comes around, buddy. And you take some comfort in knowing that what they did to you is going to come back around to them. And if you've ever taken some kind of solace in karma, here's what you need to recognize about karma, okay? Karma in Eastern religion is the belief that suffering is the result of our dharma, our dharma, our previous lives. So if you take any type of comfort in karma because somebody does something wrong to you and it's going to come back around to them, you should recognize that what karma teaches is that the suffering you're experiencing because of what they did to you is because of bad things you did in your previous life. If you experience betrayal or suffering at somebody else's hand or at the hand of just life in general, and you, you say, well, karma, karma is giving you what you deserve. You're saying, what I'm going through, I deserve because of something I did in a previous life. And I didn't do anything bad enough to become a worm, but I, I did something bad enough to become a person who's suffering. Mark Clark, who wrote the book, The Problem of God, talks about he went on a trip to India. And as they're making their way through the streets of India with their travel guide, there are all these street kids begging for food and begging for money, and they're clearly starving. And the guide says to the tour group, do not give them money or food, or you will intervene in karma's process of punishing them for their past lives. You know what he's saying? He's saying karma is teaching them a lesson because of what they did in the previous life. That's the reason they're dying and starving on the streets. And so the idea that Eastern religions have about suffering in the world is that we all deserve it. It's our fault. Now, New Age philosophy answers the problem of suffering in the world by saying that there is no suffering, that suffering is an illusion. That if we get in touch with the true oneness, we don't really experience sickness. We don't really go through divorce. We're not really bankrupt. You, you try that the next time you get in trouble, okay? <laughs> Officer, I wasn't speeding. It's just an illusion. You need to get in touch with the oneness of the world. I need to chase a rabbit here, okay? Some of this idea that suffering is an illusion has actually infected the church. Because there, are, there are, are people in the church that have this idea that suffering is, is just something we experience because we don't have enough faith. And that if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be experiencing this. There are people in the Word of Faith movement who, if you say, would you please pray for so-and-so, they have cancer, they'll say, don't say that word, don't give it power. We reject cancer. We reject sickness. There's some that are so entrenched in this, they will not go to the hospital to see their sick loved one because they believe that it gives power to the sickness. They will refuse to believe that it even exists. When I was in high school, I had some friends who were, were um, I'll say this kindly, they were, they were out there charismatics, okay? And there was this charismatic church that was going through revival, and they were like, you have to come, and this is what they said, experience this. And so I went with them, okay? 
And I mean, people are getting slain in the spirit, and people are speaking in, in unknown tongues. And they're like, isn't this amazing? And I'm like, this feels normal to me. I, this, I don't feel anything. It's because you don't believe. It's an illusion. And they're having healings for people up on the stage. There's a guy in the service in a wheelchair. And my friend says to me, they've tried to heal him several times, but he doesn't have enough faith. And that's the reason he's still in his wheelchair. It's his fault. Let me just say this plainly, okay? That is garbage. That's not the truth. All right? We are not word of faith people. We do not pray to bind things, okay? The suffering that we go through is not because we don't pray hard enough or believe strongly enough. And that New Age philosophy has infected the church and became incredibly popular in the 70s as New Age philosophy became incredibly popular. The problem of God is not just something that that people have because of the atheist tenets. It's because we have allowed false doctrine and heresy to infect the true message of the gospel. It's not the message of Jesus. Now, there is some suffering that's of our own making. Okay? If you doubt that, just get on Facebook and watch people make bad decisions and then complain about them, okay? There's some, there's, there's some suffering that you experience because you made bad choices, okay? But there's also suffering that you had no hand in. And there's a great example of this in Genesis chapter 4. I know I told you to turn there a long time ago, but let's read this passage together, okay? This is right after Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. His her first son. And she bare again his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. What, what's, hap- what's happening to Cain? Cain is suffering. And the Lord makes it clear to Cain, if, if you do well, you will be accepted. He's saying, Cain, this is, this is your fault. If you will make this right, you'll be accepted. Pick up reading again in verse 6. The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance falling? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Verse 8, Cain takes matters into his own hands. He decides that because there is suffering in the world, that he has the power to make it right in his own way. And he justifies his actions and what he does. Verse 8, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. 
Cain was upset because he had done wrong and God was not pleased with him. But what did Abel do? Abel did everything right. His offering was pleasing to the Lord. And Abel suffered because of Cain's wrongdoing, not his own. Abel did nothing wrong. And here's what's incredible. This is right after they've been expelled from the garden. This is the first family. And murder comes into the picture. Suffering springs upon the first people in the world because of sin. Abel didn't do anything wrong. This happens one chapter after Adam and Eve exercised their free will and eat of the tree that they're not supposed to eat of. They chose sin and sin flooded into the world and sin mixed with our free will brought about untold suffering that would last for generations and generations and we are experiencing today. The reason for suffering in the world is sin. That's the reason for suffering in the world. The Bible says that God created a perfect place. And after every step of the way, he said, he saw that it was good. He created man and woman, he saw that it was very good. And today things are not good. And what changed is sin entered into the picture. And once sin entered into the picture, mixed with our free will, people chose wrong and it brought suffering upon themselves. And they chose wrong and it brought suffering upon others. And the world was cursed and broken and pain and suffering sprang up out of nowhere. And people became sick and people died. And the reason for this suffering is sin entered into the picture. You say, well, Pastor Dan, okay, we, we know what the problem is. Somebody should tell God so we can fix it. He did. He comes and he finds Adam and Eve of sin and he immediately tells them what he will do to remedy the situation. He says that he will send his son to crush the head of the serpent, that his heel would be bruised in the process that the son would suffer for our sin, to destroy the work of our sin. And in his suffering, he would take away the suffering of the world. So God provided a way for sin to be dealt with. Then he gave a covering to Adam and Eve, and then he expelled them out of the garden. And you say, wait a minute, what? I thought, I thought he was trying to help them. Why would he kick them out of paradise? Scripture says that he puts them out of the garden, and that he actually places an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance so they do not return and eat of the tree of life. What's going on here? God puts Adam and Eve out of the garden. He puts together a plan to make the suffering of the world end, to cover the sin and shame of humanity. And then he puts Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they cannot eat of the tree of life. Because if they ate of the tree of life, they would have immortality. And if they had immortality, then they would forever live in their broken condition. You see, the reason for suffering is sin, but the purpose in suffering is grace. God didn't allow Adam and Eve to go back in the garden because He didn't want them to live forever in their broken condition. God doesn't just 
wave a magic wand and make everything better because He doesn't want us to live forever without any problems in our broken condition. The world is a place that is difficult and hard, a place of suffering, so that we will recognize that we desperately need God. Let me try to explain what I'm saying. Several years ago, I broke my arm, okay? That was painful. But it wasn't so painful that I, I, I was like, oh, my arm is broken. I woke up and I said, ouch, that kind of hurt. And I went about what I was doing, and then I was like, my arm doesn't work. It, it won't bend. Something's wrong with it. So I rubbed some dirt on it, and it was still messed up. Couldn't walk it off. So I go to the emergency room. You know what they wanted to do at the emergency room? They wanted to straighten this arm that wouldn't bend out so they could do an x-ray. And the most painful experience about breaking my arm was not the fall. The most painful part of the experience was two nurses with my arm on the x-ray machine grabbing my forearm and pulling it open. I nearly passed out. And they're going, what is the deal? Like they're making me feel bad for how wimpy I'm being. And then the picture comes up on the screen and they go, oh. You see, the bone had broken and had wedged into my elbow joint like a screwdriver in a spoke. It couldn't open. That was horribly painful. But when they did that, it became obvious I couldn't just have it set in a cast. I couldn't just put it in a sling and go about my day. I had to have surgery. I want you to imagine another scenario where I fall and I break my arm and my arm won't bend, it won't work, and I say, I got some pain medicine. And I just start taking pain medicine. Or I refuse to, to get an x-ray and I say, just, just put it in a sling, just wrap it in a cast. And my bone grows back together, stuck in my elbow, stuck in the joint. I would have lived the rest of my life like this. If I'd broken my arm that way 150 years ago, this is how I would have lived the rest of my life, like this. And the pain and suffering of that x-ray gave evidence to what was really wrong. And the pain and suffering of this life gives evidence to what is really wrong, what's broken in us. And probably every one of us can identify with, this is painful, this doesn't work. This isn't working. I mean, think about when Jesus came. Jesus is walking around and he's healing people. He's feeding people who are starving. He's taking a, a small lunch and, and making it possible for thousands of people to eat. He is alleviating suffering. He's alleviating those that are sick. He's alleviating those who are starving. He's helping people. He's doing all of these things to end suffering. And then he stops so that he can walk to a cross. Why? Because while Jesus was here, he cared about alleviating suffering, but he cared most importantly about fixing what is broken in us. So why, did, why didn't Jesus just stick around and keep healing people? Why didn't he stick around and just keep feeding people? Because he knew that there was something greater broken within us that needed rectifying, that needed fixing. 
And that's the reason that he went to the cross. And it would be tragic if we lived in a world where there was nothing wrong and there were no difficulties and we just stayed broken on the inside. And then one day we appeared before God and we said, whoa, I never knew there was anything wrong with me. C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist, said that the thing that was convincing to him was that there was suffering and pain in the world. And he recognized that his heart rejected it and longed for something greater. And he said that pointed to the fact that God had given me some, some kind of ideal that there is something more. And I think that in every one of us, there's this heart cry, there's got to be something else. There's got to be something more. There's got to be a reason for this. There's got to be a purpose for this. And that's what was convincing to C.S. Lewis. Now, everything that I've said is nice and theoretical and philosophical. But when you see it lived out in someone, it makes all the difference. Over the past year, I have watched people in our congregation deal with great tragedy and still remain hopeful because they have a solid faith. David and Kim Stone were in that group. And watching them go through the, the tragedy of losing their nine-year-old granddaughter, nearly losing their five-year-old grandson, and yet every time I talked to him on the phone, he had hope because he had this solid faith. That's what inspired my message on Easter Sunday, that hope is built upon faith. That's what inspired me to tackle this series of messages, because I know that if you have faith, you can have a hope in the face of great tragedy and suffering. The last Sunday that they were able to be present with was David told me, he said, I would love to give a testimony, but I know that I could not get through. So he and I met a couple of Tuesday nights ago, and we recorded his testimony in video. And we're going to share that with you now. So if we can I bring the light. About two miles from the house, coming home from work. And my phone rang. And of course, I seen it was Jeremy. And didn't get much thought. And I answered it. And Jeremy told me, said, Dad, I've got some pretty bad news. He said, Emily was on her way to St. Louis. Her and the, the kids. And that she got up by Mount Vernon and hydro, her car hydroplane that she went across the median, got hit head on by a, a semi and then spun sideways and hit by a small bus. And he told me, he said, it don't look good. He said, Jaylee's, they have to do CPR on Jaylee. So their heart had stopped. But they did get her heart restarted. And he said, Wes is unconscious. So I told him, he said, I tried to call his mom and said she didn't answer. So when I got home, got out of the truck, of course, Kim was outside. She was mowing the grass. That's why she didn't hear Jeremy call. And she seen I was crying. She wanted to know what was wrong. And I told her, I told her, just grab some close right quick and let's head to Mount Vernon. That's where they was at in the hospital. They were flying daily 
to St. Louis to the Children's Hospital. And they had to keep West there at Mount Vernon because of the pressure on the brain and they had to do the emergency surgery to remove the skull cap or he would not have made the flight. So we went on to St. Louis. Jeremy wanted somebody to be there for Jason. Then when we got to St. Louis, we walked in and of course Jeremy had told him, you know, the grandparents will be there before we are. And so the doctor came out and talked to us and I knew as soon as I saw the doctor, it wasn't good. And she didn't try to sugarcoat it. She told us, you know, it's, it's not a pretty picture. We don't, don't think she's going to live. So we then waited and for Jeremy and Emily to get there with Wes. And we were able to go in and see Wes. And that was very hard. He had the breathing tube in, he had a heart monitor, he had all the things hooked to his head monitoring his brain activity and had a bleeder in to drain the blood off of the brain. We've had many ups and downs. As you know, I would send you a text and it wouldn't be a minute and things would change. It's been a struggle, a long road with that little boy. God gave him a strong will to live, the ability to fight, to not give up. He surprised the doctors. You know, he's doing things now that they said he would never do. We prayed and we know we owe a lot to this church, I guess. Through it all, even though we were down there a couple hundred miles apart, we could feel your prayer. We could feel the power of the prayer. And God is faithful. He cherishes the prayers of the saints. And He knows the prayers that come from the heart. Jaylee was so, so talented in her gymnastics ability that she was even more gifted in love. I'll never forget, we were sitting at the dinner table one day, just Ken and myself and Jaylee. She was probably four at that time. I was getting ready to say the blessing, and Jamie said, Pop off. I said, Yes, honey, what do you mean? She said, Do you mind if I say the blessing? We're told Jamie sitting in the back seat, and we have a CD player on, and she loved to sing. And when the song come on, Take Me Up to Higher Ground, you can hear her bellow those words. That's something that we've got for the rest of our life to cherish thanks to. And also we know that God answered us. He did take us to higher ground. We miss her dearly, but we know where she is. And we know that one day again we'll see her. God knows his plans. He knows what the future holds. And I just trust in him and you know, they're just our children, grandchildren are just long to us from God. They belong to him. He's the creator of life, the sustainer, and I just trust in his perfect will.
during Toyota shutdown. Normally, Kim and I will go to Branson or down to Nashville or someplace. But for some reason, I told her, let's just stay home. Let's go back home, visit your mom, take the grandkids up there. I'm so thankful. We went to Spring Mill State Park, and they had a wonderful time. We had a beautiful day. We pulled in, and there's a creek run through with where I parked. And I thought that was going to be the extent of the trip. Once they got in there, they didn't want to get out, but <laughs> but they did. And, and we walked through. We went in some caves. No matter where Kim and I could have went, how much money we could have spent, it wouldn't have meant near as much as just taking them back home and spending some quality time with them, taking them out to the park. And looking back, I think God knew. God, I know He knew what was coming. We lost our son, oldest son, December 31st, 2002, to a, a drug overdose. And we had quit going to church like, like we should have. We, we had stepped away some. But I knew deep down that the only way I was going to make it was to come back to God. So we we came back to the church. We got back in the church and we grew stronger and stronger. I remember one of my friends asked Dad when we lost our son, he said, he's going to have to probably go get some kind of pills medication. Dad said, no. He said, he knows where his strength lies. And I'm glad I heard his pain. Because it was a awakening. And then when we got the call about this accident and we lost Jaylee, you know, I, I, after being through what we went through with our son, losing our son, I knew God brought us through that and made us stronger, brought us closer together. And I knew from that experience that it was only going to get better. God, as I told you, has got a perfect will and a perfect plan. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know why things happen the way they do. But without hope and faith in God, there would be no hope. There's no doubt in my mind who's in control. And anybody that has any doubt, if they'll just come and talk to us and see Will West and see what we've been through and to know the people that's been praying and how those prayers are being answered. I don't see how they could ever doubt again. God is faithful. And what I saw in David is what the Psalms tell us. God is near to the brokenhearted. He's not aloof. He's not unconcerned. He's not discompassionate. He is near to the brokenhearted. While there is suffering and trauma and heartache in this life, God sent His own Son to put an end to all suffering and sin. And Scripture says that He is acquainted with our grief, that there is no sorrow that He is unfamiliar with or unconcerned with. And so if you're suffering today, 
I want you to know that God is near to you and invites you to be near to him. Let's bow our heads for a word of